Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and its honorable court. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, you may have noticed I'm not Chief Justice Newby, um, but I am presiding because the Chief Justice and Justice Irvin are recused in this matter. So the case that we're calling for argument now is Williams versus Allen, et cetera. Um, we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Associate Justices. <clears throat> I'm Ellis Boyle, and I represent Mrs. Hanya Williams, who is the plaintiff appellee, I'd like to respectfully request that we have five minutes for rebuttal reserved for my partner, Joe Knott. My client respectfully asks that the court adopt the dissent and affirm the trial court's order in this case. The specific issue is the dissent, from the dissent is uh, whether the dissent was correct in allowing uh, the trial court's order to be affirmed because the PA, Ms. Allen, submitted an incident report to the risk management department in this case. And the dissent affirmed for three reasons, either one of which is or some combination are compelling grounds for this court to adopt the assent uh, and confirm or affirm the trial court's order. First, the defendants failed to present the actual evidence in question to the Court of Appeals, either in the record on appeal or as a sealed uh, document for the Court of Appeals to consider. And that has deprived the Court of Appeals and this court the opportunity to review the actual document and evidence that's in question from the lower court. Second, the defendants failed to ask formally for a um, findings of fact from the trial court, so there's no need to remand for that. The majority's opinion basically rested on this issue and said that <clears throat> the decision should be remanded or the, the case should be remanded for the trial court to make findings of fact but as the dissent noted, there was a conversation at the end of the hearing on January 29th, 2020 in the second motion, the motion to enforce with Judge Bridges, where the judge and defense counsel talked about the judge's reasoning uh, in, in handing down his order to compel the document. And uh, the defense never formally asked for findings of fact uh, as is required under the rules. And, um, as the dissent pointed out, there's no statute that would require uh, specific findings of fact in a case like this. Uh, also, um, the trial court asked both parties to submit proposed orders, uh, and both parties did. So the trial court had uh, the defendants propose the order and could have adopted it, but chose not to. <clears throat> well, let me ask you about, well, go ahead. Uh, let me ask you a real quick question about Art number two, um, Rule 52 says that findings of fact and conclusions are necessary only when requested by a party. Is there authority that specifies what kind of request that has to be? Uh, I, I believe it has to be some type of request. And I think if you look at um, the transcript as laid out in the dissent in the briefing, there was no formal request at all uh, for specific findings of fact. There was a conversation about what the trial court's reasoning was, and the trial court actually gave it, maybe not expressed in the written order on March of 2020. Uh, but when you look at that order, Your Honor, uh, I believe that it does uh, have findings of facts in it, and uh, defendants may not like the way it came out, and I, I understand that. Uh, but there are findings of fact in that specific order that are adequate to explain why the trial court reached the conclusion that it did. Um, so the third reason, and I think this is the most compelling reason, even if the court uh, can and, and very well may 
decide this case on the first two reasons from the dissent. The third reason is more compelling. Uh, and, and in that, the dissent <clears throat> identified the fact that the defendants failed to provide adequate evidence that they had a qualifying medical review committee that could qualify under the narrowly construed, statutorily defined peer review privilege at issue here. And we're talking about North Carolina General Statute 90-21.22A, subsection A, subsection 1. To qualify uh, for any possible peer review privilege under that statute, the proponent of the privilege, and that would be the defendants in this case, the U.S. Acute Care Solutions and P.A. Allen, would have to show up with proof, admissible evidence, that would show that every member of that committee was licensed under Chapter 90 of North Carolina law. Now, Chapter 90 of the North Carolina laws is a pretty broad chapter that talks about a bunch of different types of health care providers. Uh, it ranges from doctors to PAs to nurses to opticians to nursing home administrators. And if you want to see a full list, uh, you can look at the uh, plaintiff's brief, the response brief in the Court of Appeals on page 26, footnote 1. We go through and we, we list every single type of uh, health care provider that could be licensed under Chapter 90 to meet this qualification under 90-21.22a. And even the majority, in its opinion, at paragraphs 21 and 24, acknowledges that the unambiguous language in this statute 90-21-21-A, subsection A, subsection 1, requires every member of a qualifying medical review committee to be licensed under Chapter 90, so licensed under North Carolina law. The defendants submitted an affidavit from Mr. Otwell to the trial court in the January 29, 2020 hearing. And in that, I'm sorry, January 31, 2020 hearing. In that um, affidavit from Mr. Otwell, who is apparently a lawyer who works at the Ohio headquarters for U.S. Acute Care Solutions um, and, and their risk management department, that lawyer in his affidavit said that the members of the purportedly qualifying committee um, were licensed health care providers. He did not say they were licensed under Chapter 90 of North Carolina law. That is an affirmative requirement that the burden of proof must be met by a defendant seeking to avail itself of this particular statutory privilege. It's narrowly construed. It's in derogation of the common law and the attempts of uh, parties to get to the truth of the matter and present all of the evidence to the court. So it has to be narrowly construed, and the proponent has to meet every requirement there. So this court can look at that affidavit, as the dissent did, and, and see that what the facts are, are in this case from that affidavit do not comply and, and check the box for this statutory requirement. There's not any opinion uh, on this particular issue related to a non-hospital medical review committee from either this court or from the Court of Appeals. So uh, there is a distinction here. I'd like to point out that there's the hospital version of a medical review committee under North Carolina General Statute 131E.76, subsection 5. That's the hospital version versus the non-hospital version, which is what we're talking about here, 90-21.22A, A1. So um, it's important to note the dis distinctions there. They are different, and they have different requirements. There are some cases about the hospital version, and I'll, I'll uh, suggest that, that you could frame, this court could frame its uh, decision in looking at those hospital versions and applying it to the non-hospital version as a framework in a moment. But the hospital version basically says that if a hospital forms a committee formed by the trustees of the hospital or by the medical staff, and it has a committee that's written down somewhere in the bylaws or some instructions or guidelines that it can form a qualifying medical review committee that then is able to avail itself 
of the hospital version of peer review privilege under 131E. Now, what does that mean as compared to what we're talking about with the non-hospital version? So if a hospital's trustees set up a committee that says, all right, we're going to have a medical review committee under 131E that has a doctor, a dentist, uh, a CPA, a lawyer, and a dog walker. That's who should be on this committee. And then they form the committee and it has a doctor, a dentist, a dog walker, a CPA, and a lawyer. They've complied with their internal regulations. And that committee, even though it has people that are not licensed, dog walkers, lawyers, not licensed under Chapter 90, can, in fact, avail itself of the peer review privilege, the statutorily created peer review privilege under 131E. The difference, again, is that the non-hospital version, uh, everyone has to be licensed under Chapter 90, and that did not happen here in this case. So uh, I mentioned the, the case law about the hospital version, and I think it's interesting to look at the, the development of that over time. 2010, you had the Bryson versus Haywood County Hospital uh, from the Court of Appeals case. And in that case, the hospital, the Haywood County Hospital, was trying to avail itself of the peer review privilege under uh, 131E. But they did not provide a, an affidavit at all. They didn't provide any evidence to the court to suggest that they had a qualifying medical review committee. So the court looked at it and said, there's no evidence here. You, you can't uh, meet the first requirement to uh, try and avail yourself of the privilege. Then in 2013 and 2014, uh, there was the Hammond v. Sinai case that was in the Court of Appeals, and then it came up to this court. Uh, and in that case, there was an affidavit from the defendant proponent uh, trying to avail itself of the privilege. Uh, but the affidavit was found to be inadequate. So there was an affidavit, but it didn't check all the boxes. So in that case, they were not allowed to avail themselves of the privilege. The privilege did not attach because they didn't check all the boxes to meet the statutory requirements. And then interestingly, I think uh, closing the loop there, the third case I'd like to mention is in 2016. And uh, that was the estate of Ray v. Forgy case from the Court of Appeals. And in that case, the hospital proponent had an affidavit, and in the affidavit described the bylaws that created a, a potential medical review committee, and then how they actually applied it and did follow their own internal guidelines and created it. And then they also had a privilege log that explained why the documents they were saying should be privileged because of uh, their use by or creation by this uh, qualifying medical review committee were privileged. And in that context, they checked all the boxes, closed the loop, and the Court of Appeals allowed the privilege to attach. Um, so again, that's in the hospital medical review committee context, but uh, this court can, and uh, we would suggest should, uh, apply that same framework in this non-hospital review committee context under 90.21.22a, and uh, tell not only the parties in this case, but every future litigant what is expected and how you have to meet the standard to actually comply with and avail yourself of this um, peer review privilege. Well, as I understand the Court of Appeals majority, um, they d said that the trial court had declined to make findings on that issue and remanded to the trial court to do so. Why isn't that appropriate here? Well, Your Honor, um, I think uh, a, a careful reading of the trial court's order uh, and the transcript that, that dealt with that uh, January 31st hearing. The defendants showed up, well, and, and you, you sort of have to understand document A versus document B. And uh, what happened here was there were discovery requests sent to Miss um, Allen asking if she had been investigated or uh, if there was any internal review. The answer was no. Her deposition was set a few months later. Just prior to her deposition, about a week prior, a privilege log was produced for the first time with a document that was purportedly something that she had written and submitted to the risk management department. At that point, um, plaintiffs asked for that document. Defendants declined to give it without a court order. So there was the first hearing. That was the Rule 37A motion to compel in August of 2019. At that hearing, the defendant's argument was, this is a document that was presented to the risk management department. Uh, 
um, and it, it should be shielded by the work product protection for anticipation of litigation. And there was n basically no argument at all uh, or contention from the defendants that uh, this document, the, the incident report to risk management, as it was described, was uh, peer review privileged. So Judge Irvin, uh, at the hearing in August of 2019, looked at that document in camera and decided that it wasn't privileged, it wasn't work product protection in anticipation of litigation, and ordered that it be produced. It was produced, or, or that document, document A, was produced. Um, then the Ms. Allen's deposition occurred in October, so a few months later, after the document had been produced. And during her deposition, the question was posed, is this document, document A, what you submitted as the incident report to the risk management department? Her response was no. She said, I wrote document A as just something for my own use that I wanted to keep for my records to remind me of what happened. So the, the question was further posed, is there another document that was in fact given to the risk management department, an incident report? She said, yes. So at that point, it became clear that even though the first hearing had been discussing an incident report submitted to risk management, that that document had not been, and, and the Judge Irvin's order had basically been premised on producing the incident report that was given to risk management, that document had not been produced. So we went back for uh, a second motion under Rule 37, this time under Rule 37B, a motion to enforce the original order from August of 2019, and that was heard by Judge Bridges in January of 2020. At that hearing, uh, there was a second document, document B, that was handed up in camera to Judge Bridges, uh, and Judge Bridges looked at it, and you've heard a little bit about the, the conversation at the end of what the reasoning was for Judge Bridges' order. And when you look at that order from March of 2020 from Judge Bridges related to the motion to enforce, the second motion, second hearing, you can see that what Judge Bridges was saying is this document was always what had been discussed. It always existed. Uh, correct, you're right, uh, Your Honor, that... that Judge Bridges in his order from March of 2020 didn't really go into the peer review privilege, but it, it, it's clear that what he was saying uh, from his order was, you should have raised all of these arguments and presented, you, you were talking about document B the whole time in the first hearing, but you didn't give document B, you gave document A. And so document B was and always has been something that was the incident report submitted to risk management. So um, he was enforcing Judge Irvin's earlier order. So, so with this lack of analysis in the trial court order, why would it not be appropriate then for this court to follow what the Court of Appeals said in its opinion, which is in order to promote meaningful appellate review, to send the matter back to the trial court for clarifications on all this? Uh, it's a good question, Your Honor, and I would suggest that the, the reason is because uh, the defendants waived any ability to bring the peer review privilege by not bringing it when they answered the discovery, I believe in March or April of 2019, and then when they gave a privilege log in July of 2019, and then when they made their arguments before Judge Irvin in August of 2019. And it wasn't until um, the second hearing, the motion to enforce, that they actually raised a, a question of uh, is there a peer review privilege? In fact, when you look at the discovery um, from Ms. Allen, she said she was never investigated. So uh, they, they, they basically didn't have a motion to uh, shield this information, this document that was an incident report given to risk management uh, for peer review until the second bite at the apple. And if this is remanded for further hearings, it'll be a third bite at the same apple. Um, so. Uh, I hesitate to even bring that up because I think the answer is is that they've just waived any argument for peer review and I personally would prefer that this court uh, take up the issue and actually give a pronouncement about what it takes to actually adequately qualify a committee under 9021-22A. Well, uh, let me ask you a follow-up. In the order, um, the one from March of 2020, um, paragraph two, 
um, includes a sentence that the defendants, et cetera, provided an affidavit that satisfied the court that the Medical Review Committee privilege as defined in North Carolina General Statute 90-2021.22a um, applied to shield production of the first three pages. So it looks like the order did address the, that privilege to an extent without explaining more. And the Court of Appeals felt that the findings weren't sufficient to enable meaningful appellate review. What's, is that analysis inappropriate? Well, um, Your Honor, I believe that uh, to the extent that the March order addressed it, but inadequately, there's no question that the underlying affidavit that could have possibly guided the uh, trial court's decision in that second hearing in January of 2020 is available to this court and was available to the Court of Appeals. So the affidavit from Mr. Um, Otwell is in the record on appeal, and this court can look at it. So if this court wants to engage in a de novo review of that um, or, or even an abuse of discretion review, I believe it's before this court, and, and this court can read the affidavit um, as the dissent pointed out um, in paragraph 39, they actually the dissent, um, and it, it cuts and paste, if you will, uh, Mr. Otwell's uh, affidavit here. And it, it, the second sentence says, this was a committee composed of licensed healthcare providers, uh, which was form for the purpose of evaluating quality, cost, and necessity for healthcare services provided by EMP. Again, uh, that, that, that alone is what's in the record, and if you send it back to the trial court to evaluate that, I don't think you need to do that. I think you can do that here and say it does not contain uh, a, a full factual disclosure that the, they were licensed under Chapter 90. And I, uh, certainly the court can do that. I'm not suggesting otherwise. but. I suggest that the more efficient way to do it would be to look at it. Even though the order doesn't specifically make those findings? Even though the order doesn't specifically make those findings, they are clearly in the affidavit that was presented to the, to the court uh, in, in the trial court uh, and, and clearly before this court on the record on appeal, Your Honor. Well, why are you saying that we don't have to do it? Uh, would it be a better philosophy here well, why would it not be a better philosophy to do it in order that we have a fuller record for appellate review since what I'm hearing you say is there are some matters that could have been more fully developed but weren't. We have an opportunity now to do that in this court. Why would that not be appropriate? Your Honor, uh, again, I think this court can do whatever it wants, uh, and I, I wouldn't suggest otherwise. Uh, but I think Within that, some limitations. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you that, but uh, I understand, Your Honor. Uh, the, the, the reason I think that it would be more efficient to do this uh, now as opposed to remanding is you have all the information that if you remand, you're asking the trial court to look at the same thing you can look at. In fact, it's in the dissent. It's quoted on paragraph 39. Uh, I, I would just suggest that I don't believe this court needs the trial court to look at it and say, that's right. It doesn't say under Chapter 90, when you can do that here the same way, and it would be more efficient and more effective for this court to address this particular issue that is of concern not only, again, to these parties, but to many litigants uh, in the state who deal with medical malpractice and peer review issues. Would that have this court then to be delving into fact-finding? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. Uh, I believe that... Um, you, this court would not be needing to weigh and compete facts here. It would just be simply reading what's right here before it and, and making a determination comparing that fact to the, to the law and applying the fact that's clearly in the record here to the law that's unambiguous here. So uh, I, I believe that this court could do that, Your Honor. If I can ask you about the thing that we can't read, which is the document B, because it's not in the record, can you, and I know you haven't, seen it either, but can you explain why, um, that why that would relate to whether or not the privilege applies, or does the privilege really, uh, whether or not the privilege applies, 
Does it depend on the contents of that document, or does it just depend on other factors? I believe, Your Honor, that it could. Again, I don't know. Uh, it could say risk management department incident report. It could say peer review committee pursuant to 90-21-21A uh, um, statement by, uh, of testimony by uh, a, a, a potentially you know, by an employee. I, mean, I, I don't know. It, I think it could impact the analysis. And um, while I don't know that it affects, I, I think it actually, Your Honor, I should have said this, uh, it, it affects the second step here, which is would it actually be um, privileged if there was a medically, uh, if there was a properly constructed medical review committee under this statute, the, the non-hospital medical review committee, that's step one. You have to have the medical review committee, and they don't here, right? That's, that's why this uh, affidavit is insufficient. But if they did have a, an adequately constituted, statutorily sufficient medical review committee, then the question, the next step becomes, is this document uh, privileged simply because it may have gone to that committee? And I think that would certainly impact that. Um, you're, you're getting into... Mr. Knott's time. Yes, Your Honor. So uh, if there's nothing further, uh, if there are any other questions, if not, um, my client respectfully requests that the court adopt uh, the uh, decision from the dissent, from Judge Murphy's dissent, and affirm the trial court's order and compel uh, defendants to produce the incident report. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the FLE. And just so you know, that the podium is adjustable up or down. Thank you, Your Honor. If there's a button somewhere <laughs> over very, to your right. It's a very nice podium. <laughs> there we are. May it please the court, counsel. My name is John Holden, and I am here today to represent Physician's Assistant Marshall Allen, Physician Ronwin Young, Physician Niles Raines and their employer, EMP of Mecklenburg County PLLC. We are the appellee uh, in this case. Today I'd like to structure my argument beginning with the majority opinion below, which I believe was correctly decided and that this court should uphold. However, there are significant policy implications involved in this case. The statute that we've been discussing, the peer review statute or the medical review statute under Chapter 90, has never really been explored. Its parameters have <coughs> never been defined. So I intend to discuss that after we discuss the majority's opinion and why the majority was correct. But I invite the court to take this argument where its interests lie. We have limited time. There are many issues to be discussed. Uh, and I invite any questions at any time. That being said, the majority was correct. The, the biggest problem facing this court and facing the Court of Appeals is what we don't know. We don't know what Judge Bridges wanted to do with the privilege that was raised. My client raised in the second hearing a validly asserted Medical Review Committee privilege under Chapter 90. That is critically important to the practice of medicine as we will discuss further in this argument. What Judge Bridges did, very experienced, highly credentialed, well-known and respected judge, was admit that we, we gave an affidavit which was in compliance with the statute and made no further comment about, about why that did not shield this document from production as it should have. Mr. Otwell provided an affidavit that tracks the exact language of the statute, and that's what happened in the Saney case. The, the reason that the Hammond versus Saney litigants were unsuccessful in shielding the document is because they did not comply with the statute. The court, pointed, the court of Appeals pointed out multiple ways in which they had failed to comply with the statute. In this case, the affidavit that was submitted by my client tracked the exact statutory language. Since there is no case law on this issue, that is all they can do, is do their very best to comply with the statute, explain to the trial court how they have complied with the statute, and then take the feedback from the trial court, and if they feel unsatisfied with the outcome, bring it to the appellate courts. But to do that, you need a record. And there's no record here. And in the trial court, 
in the argument, unquestionably, there was a request for findings of fact and conclusions of law. As this court is well aware, litigants are not required to spout magic words or formulaic language to request relief. So the language that was used in the court was not, Judge Bridges, we request findings of fact and conclusions of law. We said we need to define the parameters of the argument for the appellate courts. What has been described by another judge in this case as, is this a 85-40 case? Meaning, are you going to drive from Charlotte on 85 to 40 to come to the Court of Appeals or not? And if so, we need findings that that court can make because, as Justice Morgan correctly pointed out, appellate courts generally are not in the fact-finding business. You review facts that are found at the trial court level. And in the absence of findings of fact at the trial court level, the appellate courts are handicapped, which is exactly what the Court of Appeals found. They found that there was an insufficient record to consider a validly asserted privilege and it needs to go back down for those findings. Once those findings of fact and conclusions of law are made by the trial court, it may at that point be appropriate to come back to the appellate courts to define the scope of the privilege and the licensing question, which I believe we have answered and I will address. But without that record, the appellate courts are hamstrung. You're hamstrung, the Court of Appeals is hamstrung. We need a record. And the only way to get that record is to, re is to remand to the trial court. And I believe that is entirely appropriate. So the, the, the rule does require findings upon request. Correct. And is, is the only um, discussion of it at the hearing that's in the record the phrase that you referred to? No, no, Your Honor. In the record on appeal, there is a somewhat extended colloquy. Uh, I was present, uh, Mr. Boyle was present, Judge Bridges obviously was, and I repeatedly asked him to express what he was doing with my claim of privilege. Uh, and I can, I can read the quotes, but in the interest of time, I would prefer to just summarize the nature of them. You could, and they're in the record and can be read verbatim. But I, kept saying, I said to the judge, you know, I respect your decision, your, your ordering disclosure of the document. Can you tell me what your ruling is with privilege? Was it waived? Uh, is it overridden in some fashion? Just tell my client why they don't have the privilege that is contained in the statutes in North Carolina because they practice medicine in North Carolina and they're entitled to know what they can shield from disclosure in this state. And if you give me the guidance, we can make a decision about whether we're going to accept the court's reasoning or we're going to appeal it. But he declined to do so, unfortunately, which brings up the lack of a record in this case. But what would you say was the error here? Was it uh, an abuse of discretion uh, by the trial court to not do so? Uh, was it uh, a matter of uh, an error of law in not following the statute. What would you contend here is the basis upon which we could find that the trial court erred? Well, if you look at the Hammond versus Saney case, they were considering the analogous peer review statute for the hospital-based medicine, and that question arose, Your Honor, uh, of what is the standard to review a medical privilege claim that is determined by the trial court to be without merit. They override it and they order disclosure of the document. And because it involves a question of statutory interpretation, because these are statutory provisions, it is a de novo review. Whereas generally, as the court is well aware, a, a ordinary discovery dispute would be on an abuse of discretion standard. So if it was not a privileged document, if they were arguing it was unduly burdensome, then it would be reviewed on an abuse of discretion standard. But because this is a question of, I am taking refuge in this particular statutory enactment, does it apply to this document? That is statutory interpretation de novo review. Did I answer your question? It does. Thank you. And why can't we use the affidavit and apply de novo review uh, currently? Because what you're reviewing, I think, is the question of Judge Bridges' reasoning uh, in applying the affidavit. The affidavit is a piece of the puzzle that explains what he was presented with, but we need to know what he concluded about the affidavit. It only is, it is only part of, the, part of the issue. So did he review that affidavit and find, it, find that uh, my clients did not include a provision in the statute? Uh, if it, it might be helpful, and since we have this nice screen here, I can pull up the statute, so it might be, um, might be helpful at this point. If, So this is the statute that, w that we are discussing. So in, in reference to your question, Your Honor, if Judge Bridges' reasoning was that 
the committee was not, as it says, formed for the purpose of evaluating the quality, cost, or necessity for health care. If that was what he said, he said, you, I looked at Mr. Otwell's affidavit, and he did not state under oath that it was formed for that purpose. That would have been a fatal deficiency, potentially. But we don't know if that's what it was. We don't know what it was. So I think the, while the affidavit is useful, it, it's only the input that was given to the trial judge who, upon request, then had to make the uh, requested findings of fact and conclusions of law to allow you to conduct meaningful appellate review. But are you suggesting we need to know what the trial court thought the legal significance of the affidavit was or that there's some fact in dispute that the affidavit, what factual conclusions he drew from the affidavit? I think that he, the factual piece is what Mr. Otwell said about the committee. So the, the, just to back up one step, this is a committee, uh, my client is based in Canton, Ohio. This committee is based in Canton, Ohio. They have sites throughout, um, we're in about 20 states, and they review care from the 20 states. So the affidavit, the factual portion of the affidavit was there is a committee in Canton, Ohio. It is composed of health care providers. It is formed for this purpose. And then there were other additions that the document that was submitted by my client, Ms. Marshall Allen, was, con was considered by the committee. So those are the factual pieces. So the, the, the legal piece of it is, him comparing that factual background to the requirements of the statute 90-21.22a and making drawing a legal conclusion that the facts as presented by just by Dustin Otwell are insufficient to meet the statutory requirements and that is a legal conclusion right and so if that's what's not written down that's that's what was not put in writing by the judge the, his legal conclusions about the the affidavit why why wouldn't our why wouldn't it serve the cause of efficiency for our court to decide what the legal implications of the affidavit are cuz we do get to decide you get law. to decide absolutely we are not i don't think that is in, engaging in fact finding okay. uh, but he may so let's just take the the question of do they do they have to be licensed i, I you could you could argue that that's were they licensed as a factual issue should they be licensed as a legal issue so I need, it would be helpful to have known when the trial court overrode the privilege of my client's uh, document and did not shield it from discovery, whether he found that they were licensed but they weren't licensed correctly, which is a mixed factual and legal question that I don't think that you, at the level that you're at in reviewing this, should be put in the position of deciding. I think he should have made his, his uh, reasoning clear. But what other evidence did he have that would help him decide that question? He had, he had three affidavits uh, and the sworn testimony of Marshall Allen. So he had the affidavit of Dustin Otwell, Justin Otwell, who is the attorney who submitted the affidavit about the peer review committee. He had the affidavit of Niles Raines, uh, indicating why this information was submitted to the peer review committee in the first place. And he had the affidavit of Marshall Allen, uh, which was submitted, and her sworn testimony at deposition about how this all came about. So he could understand how this document came to be submitted to the peer review committee. And I think that that's very important. But I, I don't think that it, at this point, if you're reviewing the, the question, I don't think you made sufficient findings of fact about it. I find that the committee is insufficient. I find that the committee is, is not properly constituted. I find that the committee was not properly established, that the evidence submitted to me was not proper, was not proper to meet the statutory requirements. If he had done that, and he almost did it. He mentioned the affidavit and said an affidavit was submitted that purports to comply with this, and then it just sort of hung out there from that point forward. And I do want to address one question, if there are no further questions on this topic, about the inclusion of the document, because I think that is critical, and I think it was, it was something that was raised in the first instance in the dissent. Whether the privilege should be waived or overridden because <coughs> the document itself was not included in the record. Judge Murphy felt that that rose to a violation of the rules of appellate procedure sufficient to dismiss the appeal. He cited Rule 9 of the rules of appellate procedure in making that finding, but when I reviewed the dissent, he states absolutely correctly that Rule 9 requires inclusion of documents which are pertinent to allow meaningful appellate review. There are two different sections that he cites for that. So the question then becomes, is the, are the contents of the document 
relevant for and pertinent to allow effective appellate review. And this was discussed somewhat in, in Appellee's argument, or Appellant's argument, and, and something is related to what you raised. If, for instance, Judge Bridges had written a decision that said, I have reviewed sealed document B, and I find that it has been disseminated outside the bounds of the 90.21.22 committee, because it says distribution list, and it was sent, say, to the hospital where this care took place, which is Atrium, which is an unrelated entity. My client is a contractor working in the hospital. It was sent to the general counsel for Atrium. The general counsel for Atrium is not a member of the committee. Therefore, the committee was, was not limited properly. The statutory protection is waived, and the document must be turned over. If that had happened, then I think we'd have a very different conversation, and I think that then that document would be pertinent to allow meaningful appellate review. Judge Murphy doesn't explain how the lack of the document-impaired appellate review. Appellant does not discuss how the lack of the document-impaired meaningful appellate review. And the answer to that is, I don't think that it does. The circumstances surrounding the document are factually outlined fully, but the document itself is not critical to the review. The contents of the document have nothing to do with compliance with the statute. The Otwell Affidavit does, and the Otwell Affidavit sets forth that it was a document considered by a medical review committee composed of health care providers who are licensed under this chapter, and that language is critical, that is formed for the purpose of evaluating the quality of, cost of, or necessity of health care services, including provider credential. And the last sentence is critical, too. The legislature made a determination that this type of committee is different. It is not a medical review committee under GS 131E95. What is the difference? And in our brief, we outlined what the difference is and why the difference exists. This statute came to light more than 20 years after the initial enactment of 131E95. As counsel for the appellant pointed out, the earlier statute is really hospital-based and must be complied with on its own terms. You must comply with the statute in terms of whether your hospital has bylaws that establish it, that, it's, that you, the proper number of people outlined in the bylaws are on the committee and so forth, because that was medicine at that time. Largely local hospital-based, regional in nature, not what it is today. 90-21.22a is the North Carolina legislature's updating peer review to reflect the changes in the practice of medicine over time. This is the policy that underlies this and why it is so critical to have a proper record for appellate review, because this may be the first case, reported case, on this statute, and it is important that it be fully understood the reasoning behind the application of the facts to this case, whether, the, whether they complied, whether other peer review committees and for other entities will be able to comply with this, and if so, how? Because medicine is very different. Groups are national, they are international, and they practice medicine across state boundaries, which means that a not my client necessarily, take the Mayo Clinic, a large internationally recognized group of uh, medical centers. They have branches all throughout the United States. They need to keep uniform quality of care throughout their sites, whether they be located in North Carolina, North Dakota, or Florida. They need to keep quality at all of those sites. To allow that, the legislature enacted 90.21.22a. It discusses the growth of managed care organizations in the legislative history. Managed care organizations are exactly the precursors to the medical system that we have now, which sprawls across state lines. And what the appellant would urge is that the legislature recognize that there were sprawling multi-state medical organizations, and yet everything should be siloed in North Carolina. All of their peer review committees must be licensed in North Carolina. All the doctors must be from North Carolina. 
which defeats the entire legislative purpose of enacting a second statute. If you wanted to do that, you could have done it under the earlier statute. The North Carolina legislature recognized the changes in medicine and acknowledged them in a proper and modern way. And depriving that or changing that negatively impacts the citizens of North Carolina because what it does is it cuts North Carolina off from the rest of the medical ecosystem. So if a case arises in, here in Wake County and is reviewed only in North Carolina, you only have North Carolina doctors reviewing North Carolina care and all the knowledge is North Carolina based. If care in Wake County is reviewed by a committee comprised of a physician from Texas, one from California, one from Illinois, one from Ohio, they bring their respective diversity of experiences to their, that committee and can say, in Ohio, we've had good luck using this antibiotic for that type of antibiotic-resistant infection. That information then travels back to North Carolina and enhances the growth of medical knowledge in North Carolina. Cutting it off limits that, stops that. And that is the entire purpose of a peer review committee, whether it's hospital-based or whether it's based in multi-state -region, multi regional practices. It is to advance the practice of medicine nationwide. That's what this statute does. That's what my client's peer review committee does. And that's why it's imperative to understand the licensing question. So when the statute says license, what does it mean? Does it mean license in North Carolina? The legislature could have said comprised of providers licensed in North Carolina, but they didn't. They said licensed under this chapter. And in this chapter, when you're talking about medical providers, in chapter 90, there is a definition of what that means. And it's the only place in chapter 90 you'll find it. It doesn't say license under this section, license in North Carolina is under this chapter. And in that chapter, in 90-21.11, you have the definition. And the definition states that you can be licensed in this state or otherwise authorized to practice a number of medical groups medical specialties, medicine, podiatry, dentistry, etc. The list goes on. That is what the legislature intended, and logically so. The fact that the legislature enacted the statute and worded in that way must be given meaning. It would have been easier to simply say, a committee comprised of North Carolina physicians. Done. Clear. But they didn't do that, and there's a reason for that. And it is part of a harmonious statutory scheme. In North Carolina, we allow doctors to review care all the time who aren't licensed in North Carolina. It happens every day in the courts in North Carolina. Under Rule 702, we allow experts to come in and offer criticisms of the care of North Carolina licensed physicians in medical malpractice lawsuits. And there is no requirement under 702 that those people be licensed in North Carolina. And they're not. Plaintiff's expert, in this case, licensed in Florida. And she is going to walk into a North Carolina courtroom, should our case go to trial, and she will offer a criticism of a licensed North Carolina provider. And that could result in a verdict against my client, as it has many times before. And those questions of whether those individuals are qualified to offer testimony criticizing the care of North Carolina providers is unquestioned. This court has upheld verdicts based upon it. You, you, there have been large verdicts, and the question is, is this person qualified? There is no bar as long as you meet the statutory requirements, that you be in the same medical specialty and so forth. This statute and the application of it using non-North Carolina providers is entirely consistent with the legislative purpose of that set, of the statutes, of the case law interpreting Rule 702 and medical malpractice cases. It would be illogical to say doctors can come in from out of state and criticize North Carolina providers, but only in medical malpractice lawsuits. They can't come in and review them to improve the quality of care. So it can only be to criticize them for a negative purpose, but it can't be to make them better doctors. That is an illogical result. And I don't believe that's what the legislature intended in this case. I think that should, the, should this court reach the question of whether this statute permits 
non-North Carolina providers to review North Carolina care, the answer is absolutely yes. And, it, and they should. They should do that. And, and just to be clear on why the statute allows that, I, I, I'm trying to understand your, and so you're referring to the definition of healthcare provider under 90-21-11? Yes, that's correct. And so 1A says a person who pursuant to the provisions of chapter 90 of the general statutes is licensed or is otherwise registered or certified. And you're saying that the or otherwise registered or certified means anywhere in the country? Well, it says, that, yeah, you're, you're correct, Your Honor, because the very first sentence of the section you're reading, and I think that is the relevant section, says healthcare provider without limitation, comma, any of the following colon. And the first one is a person pursuant to provisions, a, per, a person who pursuant to the provisions of chapter 90 of the general statute is licensed or is otherwise registered or certified to engage in the practice of or otherwise perform duties associated with any of the following. But why isn't the or is otherwise registered or certified also meaning under the provisions of chapter 90? I certainly don't think that there's a bar on that. If, if you're if the interpretation of that is to say that, that North Carolina licensed physicians who are licensed under Chapter 90 as North Carolina physicians can review North Carolina care, absolutely. They're allowed, but so are the others. That's what I'm saying when I say the any of the following. So yes, North Carolina, lawyer, North Carolina doctors can review North Carolina care, but so can doctors from elsewhere for the purpose of improving the quality of care. And I think that provides a benefit to uh, physicians and the citizens of North Carolina, as I stated. Did I answer your question, Your Honor? Yes, thank you. So I, I think that Judge Murphy raised a, a number of points in his dissent. First, that with the document was left out of the record and therefore dismissed the appeal. I think uh, that we have discussed that. Um, the question of findings of fact and the request that was made below. I think the request was explicit. It was repeated. Judge Bridges is a highly experienced trial judge. I, I think he certainly understood uh, the parameters of what was being asked for when we're discussing findings necessary for meaningful appellate review. Uh, I think that unfortunately for reasons that perhaps we can explore if it, uh, upon remand, uh, those issues were not addressed by the trial court. I think it is appropriate for the trial court to be the one to address those issues. I believe that that warrants remand. Uh, we may end up back in the appellate courts later, but for today's purposes, I think the record is insufficient uh, to make a full determination as to the court's reasoning. Uh, his third criticism was the licensing issue. I think the licensing issue is really a policy issue, uh, and I think an important issue um, for why this argument is so meaningful, why it's so important to have a, a proper record, why guessing at motivations or, or in trying to determine or divine uh, the intentions of the trial court uh, is, is not appropriate in this setting. Uh, there's quite a bit at stake, both for my client and for other similarly situated litigants. Uh, I think that that requires, uh, as the Trial, as the majority below noted, it, rem it demands remand uh, and you know, further proceedings to explain uh, what the intention of the trial court was in overriding privilege. Because from my client's perspective, what happened in this case is that they asserted a privilege that was granted to them, or at least they believe is granted to them by the North Carolina legislature. And the privilege wasn't addressed and denied. It was not addressed really at all. There was no explanation, justification given uh, as to why that happened. And privilege is extremely important in the context of medical malpractice. Peer review is a vital, critical tool for it. Because without peer review, all medical care would be wonderful. There would never be any improvements because if peer review were not confidential, if it were not kept away from plaintiff's counsel, that it would become an exercise in rubber stamping the care. Because otherwise it would simply be introduced into a trial courtroom and say, look, their own peer review committee said that their care was substandard and needed an improvement and they retrained their provider. That retraining would never take place. That improvement would never take place. There was some suggestion uh, in the uh, brief submitted by the appellant that you can have peer review, but it should be non-privileged. Non-privileged peer review is not peer review. 
The same reason that we do not permit the introduction of remedial measures to establish that the original measures in place were improper. It's the same logic here. No one would ever improve anything if they knew it would subject them to liability. So peer review is critical to my client, which is almost entirely composed of, in fact, my client is owned by healthcare providers. It is a physician-owned group, and to them, critical to their continued practice, continued improvement, their oversight of their colleagues, of their employees and themselves, is dependent on the confidentiality of, critical, of peer review. And this statute that the legislature put in place in recognition of that should be respected, upheld, defined, and we should build a body of case law to support it, just as there was a body of case law put in place for the prior hospital-based peer review statute. I have a minute and a half left. Any questions? All right. Thank you. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you, counsel. I uh, would simply re request on behalf of my client uh, that the majority of the Court of Appeals be upheld. This matter be remanded for further proceedings and explanations. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. And again, Mr. Knott, the thing is adjustable. There you go. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and very briefly, we certainly agree that peer review is very important. And what makes this case interesting is there seems to be a conflict of absolutes. The culture needs peer review, and peer review needs to be protected so that there can be free and full discussion and evaluation as to how to improve medical care. We all want that to happen. And in fact, some of us are probably here because it has happened. So we, we are very much in favor of peer review. There's also a, an absolute right that injured people have a right to see all the relevant evidence. And that's, a, that's a, an absolute right also. So the argument here today has been these rights seem to be in conflict. And I would say they actually are not. Because in the peer review process, what, where the magic happens and what must be protected is the discussion within the peer review room by those who are reviewing. It's the human factor. It's the observation. It's the sparking of one intellect against another. It's questions and answers. It's assertions and denials. It's what happens in that room. That is what is protected, and that's where advances in medicine and medical care take place. And absolutely, peer review must be protected. However, this court has decided that incident reports in and of themselves are not protected. They, nothing, when you, when you come into the, when a piece of paper comes into the peer review room, it doesn't magically become a protected piece of paper. What comes into the room is not protected. What comes out of the room is protected. The comments that are made in the room are protected. So what's in the room and what comes out of the room in the form of a report, that's protected. That's to be passed around and taken care and taking care of the doctors and making sure they learn what they need to learn. But what comes into the room as a non-protected document does not become magically protected just by coming in the room. And that seems to be the argument that's been made here, and it's not the case. Uh, if, if that were the case, for example, a peer review case that is reviewing uh, medical care would look at the medical records of the patient. Well, the medical records are not protected just because they are reviewed by a peer review committee. If that were the case, they could put all medical records in the peer review, and no one could ever see the medical records. That's not what we're talking about here. What we are protecting is the peer review itself. So if they look at the documents and then they write a, a report that comes out to be shared among the doctors involved, that's protected. But what comes in the room as a document, such as an incident report, which this court has already found is not protected, doesn't magically become protected. So I would ask, Your Honor, that this court clarify that again uh, so that we don't have these discussions ongoing. 
what goes in, which part of what goes in is protected. Going in does not alter the protected status of any document. Only what comes out and only the discussion that takes place within the peer review meeting. Your Honor, that was what, so I would ask that you would allow us to see the incident report as the trial court ordered. And that would be my request of the, of the court. Any questions? Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Clark.